this is a difficult upbringing. And somewhere along the way, we don't know when, how old he was, but he prayed this prayer. He had this dream, and in the dream, God came to him and said, I offer you whatever you want. And so he could have said, I want wealth, or I want fame, or I want prosperity, or I want power. And instead, Solomon, I think because of his upbringing, said, God, I want wisdom. And so God poured wisdom onto him. So he gained the reputation as being the wisest person ever. So let's look at 1 Kings 4, verse 29. Okay, 1 Kings 4, 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breath of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, all of them, the sons of Mahel, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And so these guys are like, compared to today, it'd be like Einstein and Hawking and all these other guys, and Solomon excelled beyond all of them. Solomon's resume was ridiculous. I, like, if he ever had a job application, I don't believe he ever did. But if he did, it would be uh, incredible. He was a king for 40 years. A king for 40 years, and he brought Israel into this new place of peace. He built the temple, the temple that's found in the Old Testament, one of seven ancient wonders of the world. And he's an author. How would you like to put that on your resume? He wrote the song of Solomon. Thank you. I wondered. If we, you probably were able to piece that out. He wrote the song of Solomon. He wrote Ecclesiastes, and he wrote much of Proverbs. Uh, verse 32. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So not only did he write all these proverbs, he's a songwriter too. This guy's like uber gifted. That's like 70 albums, right? There had to be some rap in there. I mean, there had to be. But none of it was country, I'm sure, in the inspired word of God. It's just what it says. I'm just teaching the Bible, folks. Come on. Verse 33. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard all of his wisdom. And so as we look at this, we see just this incredible search and desire he wanted to study everything. He wanted to understand everything in the world. He was so geeky. He searched things out more than any single person in this room. So would we agree that Solomon had an unusual life? I mean, having parents that were like that, having a heart. He was that one kid that like, was different than all of us and just geeky and studied everything. And as the son of David, as king, he had access to everything. He had all the resources in the world to do anything that he wanted. 
One of his hobbies was acquiring horses. So wouldn't that be cool to own a horse? No, some of you are saying, thank you, some of you. 40,000 horses is what he owned. Who knows how many chariots? It's like, Tuesday, I would take off my Egyptian chariot here today. I mean, the guy just had everything you could possibly have. He became the wealthiest king of that day, and he gained the reputation as the wisest man. And yet all of it was worthless. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is difficult to interpret, but... I think it became worthless because he stopped following God. The book of 1 Kings tells us that later in his life, that he stopped following God. So let's look at what he wrote right at the end, right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And when you think about his life, and when you think about him falling away from God and no longer being a God follower, this is an unusual thing for someone to say. Wouldn't you agree? I think he's writing this at the end of his life. I think he's looking back after everything he's done, after his search for meaning in life, after trying everything, and he said, you know what? I have wasted my life. I have climbed to the top of the mountain, and I climbed the wrong mountain. There's an emptiness that now, as an old man, I can look and I can see, and I can speak to a younger generation and say, don't waste your life like I wasted mine. That's what I think that he is trying to say, writing as an old man. All right, let's uh, look at chapter 1 here. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's why I think it's Solomon. It just says right there, I'm David's son. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So, as the, the video alluded to, you guys want to get smart? Yes, yes, I want to be smart. The word hevel is a very difficult word word to translate. In the New American Standard, in the ESV, it's translated vanity. In the NIV, it's meaningless. In the NEV, it's futile. But I like the translation of the message, which is smoke, nothing but smoke. And that's the, the uh, standpoint the Bible Project people took. So the meaning is really difficult. There seems to be, there are nuances in that word of, of meaningless, of futility, of vanity, and yet also of brevity. Also, he's speaking of how our lives are so short and we want to make our lives count. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. He's speaking of the weariness of life. It's like Groundhog Day, every day. The same old thing, every day. I clean my house, 
I have to clean it again. We do the laundry, we have to do the laundry again. I showered like three days ago, I need to shower again. Life is just meaningless, it's just over and over and over. It's like a, a, a record, remember records, that keeps skipping and it's just like it can't complete. There's a weariness to life. And the best example of this is if you've ever taken a day and decided I'm gonna knock off my to-do list. I don't know if this works for you, but I tell you what, I have this list of like 10 things, and I begin to work on it, and by the end of that day, my list is like 10 things. I've just added things, I can't get anything done, that's just the way life is, it's weary. If that's not your experience, I'll give you my phone number, you can come over to my house and do my list, that would be great. <laughs> so Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick, said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. Because he's looking at Solomon and saying, this guy is just speaking from his heart and speaking out of real life experience. There's no silver lining on this cloud. There's no God talk saying that even if you follow God, then life then is just beautiful and everything is perfect. He doesn't do that. He's very honest, very forthright. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done by wisdom, all that is done under the sun. That's a phrase that is repeated. We'll come back to that. It is an unhappy business. <laughs> it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. So your education... <laughs> Sorry, college students. Your education, meaningless. Um, marriage, everyone who's married, meaningless. Kids, meaningless. Your job, meaningless. For some of you, that probably connected a little bit. Yes, I can on the authority of the word of God. Matches my experience. Your life's pleasures, meaningless. For those of you that are coming to H2O for the first time, welcome. Life is meaningless. We're glad you're here. I got to admit, I'm kind of conflicted as I read through Ecclesiastes. Part of me just wants to give the guy a hug, you know? It's like, hey, bro, let's sit down and have coffee and let's just talk. You seem to be despairing. But there's another part of it that, like, this is me. And what I mean by that is I'm very deep and philosophical and, and I can be moody. I can, like, why? What, what is going on? And so I, I kind of, in a strange way, relate to him. I'm conflicted. There's something that is just broken, and there's something that is just missing. All right. Um, what's the next verse? My notes, I knew this would happen. My notes are like worth it. No, I found it. Found it. <sighs> that, was a, that was a scary moment there. When he says, under the sun, this is a phrase that's repeated 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, over and over again, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. This is the unique perspective of life as if God is not in this equation. Ecclesiastes is a look at life without God, and what is it like? And what he's saying here is he searched out wisdom. He's saying all the great philosophers... The, the Greek ones, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and 
There's so many others. Some people would throw in Nietzsche and, and David Hume, and, and I, I, I loved philosophy, but it was a dead end. Francis Schaeffer said that there's a point in which worldly philosophy went under what's called the line of despair. It reached an end, and there was no way forward. All of the philosophers, philosophers of the world have not given us Here's the meaning of life. They've not been able to answer that. Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You're looking at life, and there's something broken. It's not straight. It's crooked. And no philosophy can fix it, and politics cannot fix it. Nothing can fix what's broken with the world. And Solomon's looking at life and going, this is just despairing how we can't fix things. And what is lacking cannot be counted. There's so much need. We cannot handle. We cannot fix all the problems in life. It's kind of depressing, actually. If you are struggling with depression, I would not necessarily recommend this being your reading material for the next few weeks. I look at this guy. It'd be easy to get the wrong impression at this point, okay? It'd be easy to look at Solomon and think, this is just a melancholic guy. This is a guy that is, is just depressed. You know, like most of us, we cover up what we're really feeling. If somebody asks you, how, how are you feeling? It's like, well, I'm fine. You ask Solomon, and he's like, vanity of vanities. Really? How's your life going? My life is meaningless. We can get the impression that Solomon is just depressed. And I'll show you why that, that is not true. So, what we've covered so far, there is a weariness of life just going round and round and round, and there is an emptiness of human philosophy. We cannot find the meaning of life. We cannot fix what is broken. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. The few days of your life. Life does go fast. This isn't melancholy here. This is just reality. I was 17 yesterday. That's what it feels like. Last trip to the doctor, he told me, you have a cataract in your eye. And I'm thinking, a cataract? That's for old people. I'm old. Solomon's experiment here. Solomon does something that some of us have done in a much smaller scale. He has the resources to do whatever he wants to do and to seek out pleasure in however he wants to do. And so he, as a king, had the right to have multiple wives. He had 700. Not only that, but he had 300 concubines, which was like a wife without any of the benefits of being a wife. And so think about this. He could have a meal with one of his wives or concubines Every single meal of the day, every day of the week, every week in the entire year, and never have to hit replay, repeat. I have no idea how he kept up with their names or their kids. Hey, 
you, <laughs> come here. I have done that. <laughs> so what he's saying here is I've sought out every worldly form of pleasure. I, I, I've done the drug scene. I did the sex scene. I hit the clubs. I hit Vegas. And at the end of all of that, he is saying that was meaningless. Verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. That is what he is saying. I have tried. This is the futility of hedonism. This is the futility of being a pleasure seeker. Because there is a law of diminishing returns. Whatever your form of pleasure is, you need more, you need more, you need more. And Solomon says, I did that. I've been there. I, I've done that. Really, I look at this section, and this is a message to America, right? Like, our world needs to hear that this is just empty. It's not going to satisfy you. So there's a weariness of life going round and round. There's an emptiness of worldly philosophy. It doesn't give us any meaning. And there's a futility of hedonism. Chapter 4. Verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, he, he who has not yet been, and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So Solomon here does something that very few people do. He took a real long look at the brokenness of our world. Like that Sarah McLachlan commercial? Yes, with the dogs. <laughs> so he actually didn't turn the channel. He stayed on there. And then he saw an advertisement, a commercial about starving children in Africa. And he heard about refugees. And he heard about sex trafficking. And he just allowed himself to look and to feel. He says that there's a weariness of life, there's an emptiness of philosophy, there's a futility of hedonism, and there's a darkness of oppression. Verse 4. Then I saw all the toil and all skill in work 
come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. That is, a lazy person that won't work destroys his own life. But, verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 16. There is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Verse 17. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. So now he's looking at work. There's several points in here. Number one, work hard, don't work hard. You end up in the same place. You end up in death. The second point is no one's going to remember you. How many of you know the name of your great-great-great-grandfather? Nobody, because we are forgotten. So there's a weariness in life. There's an emptiness of philosophy. There's a futility of hedonism or pleasure-seeking. There's a darkness of oppression. And there's a meaninglessness of chasing success, of pursuing wealth under the sun, life without God. And yet, in the middle of this darkness, and this is why I think he's just not melancholic and depressed, in the middle of this darkness, he says some things. It's repeated in different words about five times throughout this book. There's this little refrain that we come back to that I want to share with you. In the middle of his gloom, he says, life is meaningless, so go enjoy yourself. It's really an odd refrain. Chapter 9, verse 7 is one of those refrains. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Verse 8. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. That is not referring to like being greasy. That means celebrate is what that means. Verse 9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. In other words, we are all going to die. So enjoy the moment. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm an extremely philosophical person and I can get dark and moody. And this has actually helped me quite a bit. This has helped me to have perspective that someday I will die. And so I want to engage in the moments of life. I want to make the most of those moments, no matter what those moments are. So there's two messages that feel contradictory in the book of Ecclesiastes, but they're not. One is that life is utterly meaningless and you can't find meaning. The other, and that, that is to a person that is like, I'm trying to navigate life without God. I'm trying to find joy without God. And to them, Solomon says, this is meaningless. You'll never find it. And then on the other side are people that are so constant in their pursuit or their fixation on controlling life and Solomon says, time out, get some perspective, 
Enjoy the moments that God has given you. So there's a weariness of life, an emptiness of philosophy. There's a futility of hedonism or pleasure-seeking. There's a darkness of oppression. There's a meaninglessness of chasing success under the sun. But we go back to chapter 3, where the birds were singing. Chapter 3. For everything, there is a season and a time for every, every matter under heaven, a time, to die, a time to be born and a time to die, a moment. Let me just stop here. My dad passed as I was talking to my mom. And that impacted me. I, I remember sharing with my mom, I'm so glad that I'm on the phone with you right now in this moment. Was it a terrible moment? Yeah, it was. Was it a beautiful moment? Yeah, it was. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. That's why I don't think Solomon is depressed and needing Prozac. That's not what's going on here. He's giving us perspective about life under the sun. So engage in every moment. That's why this is the most honest book in the Bible from some perspective. I want to look at what I think is the main point. I want to look at what I think one verse kind of capsulizes everything that Solomon is trying to get across. It's verse 11 in chapter 3. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's made everything in it beautiful in his time. That's what we just talked about. There's a time for everything. Engage with your kids. Engage with your spouse. Engage at work. Engage with your friends. Make the most of the moments of life. God has made everything beautiful in his time. And yet, he has placed eternity in the heart. This is another Hebrew word that's difficult to translate. It means something concealed. It's a vanishing point. In other words, I can see life only so far, and beyond that, I can't grasp it. I wish I could, but I can't grasp it. Or I can go back in time, but only so far. There's a point, a vanishing point, beyond which I can't grasp. That's eternity, is what Solomon says. God has placed eternity into the heart of man. Means that every human being has this search for meaning. We want to understand what life is all about. And yet God has constructed the world or allowed the world to become fallen in such a way that we can't find the meaning that we thirst for. Why would God do that? Because if he didn't allow the world to become empty and meaningless, then we would find life. We would try to find life in the world and not in God. So it's to humble us. It's to tell us that our pursuit of finding life, and, and we all do this, don't we? Don't we all try to find life in something? We try to find life, and if only, and then it doesn't come through. And so Solomon, in a sense, says, don't do that. That's empty. 
This is a great message, uh, like I said, to America and to our very secularized world. There's a, a, a saying or a, a line that I want to introduce you to. It's called progressive utopian moralism. That's the philosophy of many people in our world. It's moralism because we think we're good people and God will certainly affect, accept us if we just try to be good people. That's moralism. It's utopian in that we think that we can create a better planet, a better place without God. It's utopian. We believe that politics and knowledge and technology will change and fix everything. Ain't going to happen. And it's progressive because we think that we're more advanced than the generation before us and the generation before them. Something strange happens with the advance of technology. We think we're all that because of technology. And I love what the prophet Bob Dylan, what the prophet Bob Dylan said about this. Man has invented his doom. The first step was touching the moon. With our ability to touch the moon, to walk on the moon, mankind kind of thought, we don't really need God. We can do anything we want. We have control. And no, we do not. There's a second reason why I think that Solomon has written in the way that he has written. I want you to turn or look at Ecclesiastes 8, verse 17. And I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. Verse 18. And though the wise men should say, I know. He cannot discover. There's a limit to what we can learn. There's a limit to the knowledge that we can grasp. There is a ceiling in our quest to find the meaning of life. And that's what Ecclesiastes deals with. The big questions, where do we come from? Where are we going? And what is the meaning of life in the middle Solomon deals with that middle question. The way I would put it is this. Ecclesiastes anticipates the gospel. Ecclesiastes ends with this sense of expectation. It's as if somebody sends you a text message. And they say in that text message... I have something really, really important to tell you, dot, dot, dot. And you're just looking at your phone, and it's like, send the message, send the message, and no message comes. Ecclesiastes anticipates the gospel because it leaves everyone with a sense of, well, what do we do with this? There is no meaning to life. But then Jesus stepped in. And then Jesus spoke to a crowd of people, like this crowd, about God and meaning and purpose. And then Jesus called those people to be a light, to be salt to the earth, to be a light in a dark world. And then Jesus, at the Last Supper, took bread and a cup and he took that bread and he tore it 
And he said, this is my body. And he took the cup and he poured out as if to say, this is what's going to happen to me tomorrow when I'm crucified. And then Jesus hung on the cross. And then the Son of God rose from the dead and that changed everything. Because we still live under the sun. We still live on a broken planet. We still live in a world that will never give us complete satisfaction. But we are no longer merely under the sun. Through Jesus, now we can be in the sun. Now we can find a joy and a meaning and a purpose that no one else in the world has. Ecclesiastes anticipates the Son of God coming to earth and revealing what life is all about through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And that is who we worship. That is who we want our hearts to be tethered to, that we would find joy and meaning and we would shine our light to the world. We thought it would be appropriate for us to take communion here this morning. So if you're a Christ follower, we have a table two tables right here. I believe we have a table in the back. Can you make your way to the table? Take a piece of the bread, take a cup, but do not drink and eat it. Go back to your seat, and then we will take communion together in just a few moments. At this point, please move to the tables. know for me I forget I forget what it was like before I came to know Jesus I forget how empty my life felt and how hungry I was to find meaning I was a frustrated angry young man because life made no sense today as we take communion let us remember where meaning and purpose and joy is found not in our accomplishment not in hedonism, not in fixing the world. Meaning is found in a broken body. At this point, please participate in the bread. And joy and forgiveness and hope and love and purpose is found 
poured out the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And at this point, participate in the cup. God, we ask you to move our hearts this morning. We ask you to move our hearts into worship, not just in, into singing, but into celebration, the kind of celebration where you can't see something and you can't get it and you're grasping and then the blinders are removed and then you understand. May the words of our worship fall heavy on our hearts this morning as we celebrate Jesus Christ and the meaning of life. Amen.